0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: Leadership in action, that is us, everybody. Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host tonight, Mike Hussein. I'm the director of the Center for Leadership and Change and faculty director of the McNulty Leadership Program. I happen to be in the studio with my two favorite people, uh, my good friend, Jeff Klein, who is the Uh, director of the McNulty Leadership Program, in fact, Mm -hmm. the executive director. That's
2: right. Very impressive.
1: Yeah, it is. And the deputy director, (laughs) Ann Greedhall, of the very same organization. So welcome, Jeff and Ann. I don't think we've been in the same studio for quite some time. It's almost explosive. Uh, We're going to talk in the first hour tonight with the co-author of a new book called Leading Transformation, How to Take Charge of Your Company's Future, and this is all about uh, getting us from where we are to where we ought to be a little bit uh, more innovatively. I'd like to welcome Kyle Nell to the program. Kyle is the CEO of Uncommon Partners. It's a consulting and training firm specializing in business transformation. Kyle, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Kyle, just uh, let's get right into it with the yeah. title. I love the, the main title, Leading Transformation. Uh, and let's think about companies but we can also think about foundations or community groups or social movements but let's focus on bus- on business for a moment what does it mean to transform as opposed to change what what's the difference there
3: Yeah so change <coughs> is incremental right we're all changing good and bad and in different ways we're in, sometimes it's called improvement right or or making things better and and that's all good but you know in this you know this exponential world that we live in uh, everything's being, you know, quote unquote disrupted, but then no one really knows what to do about that. And so what's happening, and, and I love the discussion earlier, you see this playing out in, in global political life where this, this disruption is causing people to, to hunker down and to have a tribal kind of zero sum game. And that same thing plays out in businesses, specifically traditional uh, legacy organizations, and not just businesses, but, but organizations, because fundamentally there are people making these decisions. And we're irrational, uh, largely. And the real question then is, how. instead of just being so fatalistic about it, oh, you know, it's, the big companies will never be able to, to do those, those big things to help the planet or help the world, um, I try mm. to set out to figure out how you could actually do that. And Leading Transformation mm. is a book um, primarily driven by my experience working inside of a very large legacy organization, Lowe's Home Improvement, which I don't think anybody would have thought of as – kind of tied into disruptive innovation or big change, and then also in working with other large organizations to help them do the same thing.
1: Kyle, that's great. Let me uh, back off from the far end of that spectrum in that sometimes when I think about wholesale transformation, I'm reminded of a mm. famous Indian company called Wipro, W-I-P-R-O. Yeah. It began selling vegetable oil uh, and it now is one of the great IT firms of the universe, working in outsourcing of information technologies all over the world. Or think Nucor, an American steelmaker that actually began in a totally different line of business. I don't think we've got transformation quite in that sense uh, uh, in mind here. But uh, let's take Lowe's as a case in point. It's still doing what it's always been doing, but it's doing it in very different ways, as I discovered in looking through your book. So why don't we take up the Lowe's case? How did it transform
3: yeah. So first, I, you know, there's what we call in the book, <clears throat> big T transformation, which is what most people think, you know, massive end state transformation. But really what that is, is a manifestation of, of what we call little T transformations. So relatively small, but have big impact and create momentum. And and Wipro is a good example of that. Right. They didn't it didn't all of a sudden become this behemoth. It <clears throat> started with little T transformations to get to where it is. Yep. Um And so Lowe's is the same thing, right? So Lowe's, big, big, you know, large Fortune 40 home improvement company uh, that it was really struggling to to be innovative and to transform um, in a positive way. Um, And so the real that that's all good and great, and every organization I've ever talked to says that they want to innovate and do big things, but very few actually do. And so, as I'm a behavioral scientist by trade. And so everything that I look at was from the human angle first, rather than the way the traditional organizations typically look at, at change as, as a skills gap. Most organizations go, oh, we don't have an AI group, or we don't have a virtual reality department. Those are very rarely the primary problem. The primary problem usually is, what is this future that we're building towards, and how, to re, how do we reorganize and restructure in order to make that happen? So anyways, long story short, when I was in graduate school, I spent a lot of time studying how people make decisions. And the only real way that I saw that people make decisions and then do something about it is actually the complete antithesis of the way that we're taught in an MBA program, which is to beat people over the head with rational thought, (laughs) facts, and figures. They may agree with you, but very rarely does that actually elicit massive change, um, structural change. The only real way that people do that is this very uniquely human thing called story. And we do this – there's been so much talk about storytelling over the years, but in the business world – Usually what storytelling really is is just a chronological series of events. That's not a story. It's stories of characters, of conflict, and narrative arc. So at Lowe's, in seeing that, that huge, massive gap, um, what I did was I gave all of our marketing research and trend data to professional published science fiction writers. There's a whole <laughs> structure and rigor behind this, but essentially that. And the reason why I did that is they're able to parse through all of the stuff that could happen, and you could see how it could actually manifest in a specific period of time. And that's ultimately what matters. It's not about artificial intelligence or virtual reality or this social trend or that but it's all that soup and how it could show up in someone's life and then from that we would make real stories with characters conflicts, narrative arc and then we turn those stories into comic books and the reason why i did that was because of a behavioral economics principle was giving the executive team literally pass this out to the chiefs and instead of a powerpoint presenting it in a comic book and the reason why I did that was that they had never gotten the strategic document in comic book form before. Mm. And what that did is it caused them to kind of like, oh, how cute. And then it opened up the kind of the gates to be able to think about what that could actually be before kind of immediately going to, oh well, that doesn't benefit me right now or oh, this is happening right now. So in this story, the first story, there's a couple redesigning their part of their days or redesigning mm. their kitchen in the future. And this is before Oculus Rift even came out on Kickstarter. And there's a couple redesigning their kitchen using what we would call a heads-up virtual reality display in their home. Hmm. And so that story, before, once again, Oculus Rift had, had not come out yet. No one was really talking about VR and AR in any meaningful way. But we were able to see, okay, well, if that's going to happen, and there was some robust discussion about that, and then to work – then to reverse engineer, okay, if that's going to exist in 10 years, hypothetically, what would we do now from a make, build, and buy partnership strategy today? not just to exist, but to really take advantage of
1: this. And well, I'm that's gonna, what we did. Kyle, I'm going to break in for just yeah. a moment. I need to remind our listeners uh, that they are listening to us. This is <laughs> Leadership in Action. We're on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, uh, Mike Hussein, speaking here. I'm with Anne Greenhall and Jeff Klein And we're talking with you, Kyle Nell, uh, the author, co-author of Leading Transformation, How to Take Charge of Your Company's Future. I'd like to invite everybody to call in and join the conversation. We're at 844-942-7866. And, uh, Kyle, before we get back to you, I'm just going to use that as a reference point for a comment on one of your comments. (laughs) I forget who said this, but I hope one of our listeners will call and let us know. That looking back in history, it seems like it's just one damn thing after another. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <clears throat> but good historians uh, will take all those darn things that happen and put them into a narrative, and that's how we know who we are. Mm-hmm. So storytelling, um, um, the arc, the the <clears throat> the yeah. narrative, is a is a is a form of understanding where we're coming from, and maybe above all. On transformation, on where we are going, yeah. and over to you. Oh, thank you,
0: Kyle. Very, uh, <laughs> really wonderful to have this opportunity to speak to you about your <laughs> book. Uh, I am very drawn to the notion of narrative <laughs> and the use of art uh, as a way of conveying uh, the message <laughs> here. But I want to just step back for a moment. You were the co-author, and you said that your experience at Lowe's inspired <laughs> you to write the book. Can you say a little bit about what? brought your um, author team together, and a little bit yeah. about what each uh, each author Thanks. brought to the table here.
3: Right. Great, great. So there's, there's two other authors. Uh, the first is, um, in no particular order, of course, is N- Dr. Nathan Furr, who's a professor at NCAD, and he's written a number of Harvard Press books and is a well-published uh, author in the field of management, and specifically innovation. Um, and he and I got to know each other uh, as I was doing these things at Lowe's. And he interviewed me for an article, and we, we became, uh, we became fast, uh, fast friends because mm-hmm. our, our view was, was very similar about how do you design for ambiguity and for disruption. And the current models, in my view, that are taught in most business schools are really designed towards incremental improvement rather than disruption. So he and I really worked together um, and, uh, to be able to take these things that we were doing and then find ways uh, to be able to share it more broadly. Um, and so that's how we came together on that. And then the the second author is Dr. Thomas Ramsay, who's a really old friend of mine. Um, we were, he was going to be my PhD advisor uh-huh. um, at Copenhagen Business School in neuroscience, um, but instead I convinced him to quit his teen, uh, his tenure teaching position and start a and start a company called Neurons Inc. Uh, that uses uh, neuromarketing or applied neuroscience. Hmm. And we've been using that for years, and so it all comes together to kind of demystify and to process. If you will, something that seems very magical, which is transformation or innovation, um, and to make it something that is accessible to anybody at any level.
0: Hmm. Uh, thank you for that. And if you could sort of like just uh, put your finger on, if maybe this may not be possible, but we'll try here. What what was the particular contribution that each of you made? Because I'm I'm interested in this because yeah. you are in a way you're co-leading the writing of the of the book. And so right. what does that co-leadership look like?
3: Yeah, it, it, we had Thomas and I, Dr. Ramsey and I, have, who works, actually worked together um, on creating and quantifying the unquantifiable. Uh, some of these creative processes and what drove uh, actually drive decision making. So we had spent a lot of time working together. So there's a lot to share okay. there. So Tom, I, I we had all these wild and crazy ideas. Thomas was largely there. Uh, to help me quantify this and kind of get behind the curtain of the brain, so to speak. Okay. Um, and, and where Dr. Furr comes in is is a little bit later into the game, but um, what he was so masterful, and you know this very well, being professors, it's very, very hard to take something that's so nuanced and to turn it into a process that's more accessible to a larger audience. Um, and Nathan mm-hmm. is a master storyteller as well. So all, of these, all three of us have similar goals but come at it with very different angles. Um, kind of like the super friends.
0: Okay, and maybe one more, and then I'll I'll let Jeff get a word in edge, edgewise. How did you come upon the idea of using graphic art as a way of envisioning the future?
3: Yeah, I uh, this should come as no surprise. I'm a a giant comic book uh, nerd or aficionado, probably, and um, and then storytelling is just. Uh, I, I'm a big Joseph Campbell fan.
0: Oh, great! And
3: hmm. seeing the impact that Joseph Campbell mm. has had on people that know about him and then also kind of the peripheral effects of, you know, George Lucas and Michael Crichton. I, I was just so surprised when I came mm-hmm. into the, the quote unquote real world that nobody was using that. And mm-hmm. so I was able to kind of take what he had crafted um, and then build upon that and using archetypes and story structure mm-hmm. and to bring that in in order to help people understand what the future could be and then mm-hmm. also do something about it. And I had tested that um, using this neuroscience uh, Neuroscience as a as as an understanding um, to see what really was driving things, and and it was very clear that real narrative is the only thing that I that I've seen that really allows people to think beyond themselves and then do something with it. I've yet to see anybody rationally convinced uh, that will fundamentally change who they are.
0: I haven't seen it. That's great. I'm going to mull that over for a little bit and let Jeff ask (laughs) a question. (laughs) Thank you.
2: (laughs) So. <clears throat> I, maybe the question that's been bouncing around in my mind um, through the the first part of this interview, you're you're drawing a, distrin- a distinction a couple times between disruption and transformation versus incremental change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and and so I'm wondering, you know, for for our listeners, uh, many of whom are leading small firms or or leading divisions within mm-hmm. firms, et cetera. Um, when is disruption appropriate, and, and when might incremental change be the right answer?
3: Great question. I, I, it's all part of the package, right? So incremental change is a necessary part of every step along the way. Disruption is something that you can either mitigate or be harnessed. And this goes back to the story, right? Where, mm-hmm. where, what do we want to become? And then we should reverse back into it rather than the way most businesses operate is what's coming our way, and then how do we defend against it? It's a very different mindset, and, and uh, that's – so having that combination of both the, the incremental and the disruptive and not seeing them as mutually exclusive um, is something that I think most senior leaders have a hard time kind of wrapping their, their mind in and also their strategic plan around, um, and that's why I think storytelling is, an, is a really important thing because it goes down to if you tell – if you have a cohesive narrative, strategic narrative as an organization uh, that goes across the organization – and then those that you work with, that's far more important than whatever, you know, detailed, long-term strategic roadmap that you have. Um, and all of that will help to kind of guide which incremental improvements are made and which ones aren't, versus, and also which disruptive opportunities are, are, are gone after and which ones aren't. And and w-
2: within this frame, that's really helpful. Um, and it's leading me down a, a hopefully yeah. not too academic <laughs> rabbit hole here. Um but but I'm <laughs> gonna try. Uh, are are both the models are incremental change and disruption? Are should I hear both of those as intentional?
3: Yes, a hundred percent.
2: Okay, so I if, think
3: goes. I think yeah. Go ahead. Sorry.
2: Well, and and the reason I'm thinking about that, we um, as you were talking, uh, I was flashing back, and we had uh, General Stanley McChrystal here mm-hmm. uh, on wow. campus last week, and. You know, he was talking about the other kind of change, um, really reactive change, uh, mm-hmm. and and you know, not a new thought, but he was certainly underscoring the notion that no crisis should be wasted, right? And so, how yeah. do you how do you add intention to your reaction? Um, but do you feel like within this model, within this framework, that um, disruption, transformation, in the way that you're talking about it, it really is always an, an intentional act.
3: Well, it is and should be uh-huh. are two different things, right? So I yeah. think it should be, um, but very rarely is. And for those that – to which uh, those organizations that can harness that actually cause the crises for other organizations. I mean, all of them that happen right <laughs> now, now. we're into think systems about, think thinking, Hesma, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, they're causing a lot of this disruption for the traditional organizations. And, and so I'd, I, I don't know about you, but I'd rather be on the side of the ones kind of dictating the, the fate or the path or the pace of uh, of my industry. And that's really the choice. That's really the choice to be made.
1: Kyle, I'm gonna break in yet again. I just uh, need to remind everybody to stick around. We're gonna take a breather, a break. After the break, we're going to continue our dialogue with Kyle Nell about the book, Leading Transformation. That is our topic. If you've got thoughts on it, you know where to reach us, 844-942-7866. Give us a call. Join the dialogue. We're going to be back. I'm Mike Usain. You're listening to Leadership in Action right here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Leadership in Action. Sirius XM's Business Radio, power sponsored by us, the Wharton School. I'm your host, I'm Mike Hussein. I'm in the studio with the Executive Director of the McNulty Leadership Program, Jeffrey Klein, and the Deputy Executive Director, <laughs> Ann Greenhalgh. Thanks, Mike. There it is. An on-the-air promotion, Ann. It's it's That's a matter so nice. of record now. That was transformation right there for it was. you. Our guest this hour is Kyle Nell, CEO of Uncommon Partners, a consulting firm. And he's co-author of a book we've been speaking about directly, Leading Transformation. We had a number of thoughts on uh, changing a company versus transforming it. So, Jeff, just to jump right back into the dialogue, over to you.
2: All right. Thanks, Mike. And, Kyle, I'm going to go from maybe the, the abstract to the tangible here. Um, so it, if as an organizational leader, right, whether it's, it's me running a department here or, or one of our listeners um, – how would you coach us in terms of assessing whether or not it's the, – the time is ripe to try and do something disruptive?
3: Yeah, great question. Uh, the time is always ripe. It's, it's, it's like, um, oh, don't
0: like tell him else. that, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anna, <laughs> A bad idea. Exactly. I am yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> don't put that in the mind Not of the really. executive director.
0: <laughs> because the deputy director will need to clean up. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's, right, that's
2: right. Stand on her head. Jump through hoops. Sorry, Jeff. It's a, Kyle. It's okay. It's just you and me now. Yeah, all right. <laughs> you
3: know, there's there's never there's never an easier, a good time to make to make big changes. No, no one. Everyone says that they like these things. No one really does. It, it's all hard. And there's a reason why very few organizations and very few people actually do that, right? Um, and like, look at how many doctors that smoke, right? So there's there's there there we don't always do what we say, or even know what's best for us, right? Yeah. So how do you break that up? And there's really, there's really three buckets um, that, that, I, that I think need to be addressed. And every organization does this in some way, shape or form, but addressing these three things can either makes or breaks it in, in our view. So the first one is, what is your narrative? Like what is the strategic narrative? And either you have one and you created one and shared it and people actually accept it and talk about it, or there's another narrative. And you might not know what that is. And there might be multiple narratives floating around. And those, those things are really important. What, what are the stories that people tell? And, and you can tell too, like in your organization, what are the stories that people use to justify, uh, taking action on something? Like when I was, when I worked at Walmart, you could tell a good Sam Walton story and it didn't matter how weak the tie into what you're talking about was, that was enough to kind of get it going. Um, so those, those kinds <laughs> of things are important and they tell you a lot about the organization you're in. And then the second one is, what are the bottlenecks that keep, would keep that from happening? Like, what is the actual decision-making process? And then what's, like, kind of the black market decision-making process? You know, mm-hmm. there's always, like, four people that really are the influencers of the influencers. Um, and, and that's really important to literally lay out like, uh, like, like it was, like any other strategic plan, mm-hmm. thinking through that. And then the last is, like, how are you going to measure these things? Um, What are those what we call future KPIs? What are those future measures of success uh, to be able to determine is this working or not working? And then how do you kind of keep that process going on and on? And if you have those three pieces and you're you're disciplined about it, I've seen incredible things happen, not just at Lowe's, Mm -hmm. but at many, many other places.
2: And could you bring this this concept of a strategic narrative to life for us? Um, What you know, what's a really compelling strategic narrative that that you've encountered?
3: Yeah. I would, first of all, it's got to be a narrative, right? Um, I've seen a lot of strategic narratives that aren't really narrative. So it really really does have to be a story. Um, and it has to be a story that has compelling characters and, and all that good stuff. But there are really three bits that really differentiate just a good story from a strategic narrative. And one is it explores uh, it explores a newer kind of um, a, a world that, you're, that you sort of understand but is kind of maybe one standard deviation away from where you're at right now. So it's, an, it's, it's exploratory. Mm-hmm. The other thing is it explains, and it shows kind of how you could fit, you, your organization, or you, the person working in that organization, could fit, either explicitly or implicitly explains that. And then if those two things happen, what it does is it attracts the person to kind of fit themselves into that narrative and to see them as a part of it. And, uh, and if you can do that, it doesn't become a zero-sum game of we're doing new stuff so all the old people are out. Or we're going to go back to our core. That means we're never going to do anything new again. And it becomes more of a, a bigger tent. Um, but it, that's tied towards action.
0: Oh. Kyle, I'm going to pick that up and just ask if you can give us an example of a company that you think has done that well, a company that explores and explains in its strategic vision.
3: Yeah, I think one we mentioned in the book that are good friends of ours. I think IKEA has done a phenomenal job at that um, with the way they've been able to transition to creating things that are truly innovative, new products. And then also have been able to really, if you, if you talk to their employees, they are truly dedicated to the core, the core mission of the company. Um, and, and that is not an easy thing to do, both to constantly be innovating and changing in a very dynamic and hard industry. Globally, and then also to be able to talk to regular frontline workers that are just as bought in, by and large, as people back at home office. I think they do a wonderful job.
0: Okay, so if I could just push a little bit, what what would their narrative be?
3: Yeah, their strategic narrative is, is very clear. They're they're providing, uh, it's their their strategic narrative is that they're providing uh, great, for great products and great design. At an affordable cost right and that's that's more of the rudiments but what you see manifest are the products and the stories that they tell if you look at their marketing and the way that they get their stories out and the things that they're all of their all of their products by and large are also tied to it's not just a functional benefit but the larger impact that it has on the person on the family on the community and uh and that's a hard line to walk and also be authentic right um and they have done it. I mean, you just look at how many people come in droves globally to these to these IKEA stores. I mean, and, and online as well. I mean, if you were going to design, if you hired, you know, five hundred retail consultants, they would tell you to design the complete opposite of what they have. Mm-hmm. But it works so perfectly uh, for them because it's tied in, I think, large to a larger strategic narrative.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, uh, I really understand and appreciate your point about how the narrative has to be compelling. And so you said earlier that, you know, there has to be a sense, my word, not yours, but of plot, like a reason for why things are happening. There needs to be, you know, character development. So I'm wondering if in the narratives, strategic narratives that you have found most compelling, if there is, you know, just for example, a play on, you know, I'm am over exaggerating to make the point but sort of us them good evil <laughs> yes. or um, you know that we're on a quest of some kind yes. and that the maybe the enemy or the danger is here or there is you know am I getting at yes. what you find most compelling yes. in the strategic narratives that work
3: Yes great point so I the, the most compelling strategic narratives really develop on the hero's journey Yes you know the classic Joseph Campbell line and and it's the the us versus them it's really the us versus the future that we cannot believe doesn't exist already. Um, and then what's, uh, what, uh, what else is, rather than an us versus, you know, the other competitor. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really work in the long haul. Um, and, and, and it's also not as compelling, right? Because then you're only as good as your nearest competitor rather than, than trying to be opportunistic and reach mm-hmm. out to that future. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's always, that seems to be missing many times is, how does your f- vision of the future tie in to the already the hero's journey of the past? Mm-hmm. And at every organization I've ever worked at, day one, you know, they take out the white binder. And what's the first? I don't know why the binder is always white. But <laughs> you take out the white binder and they tell you the origin story, right? Right. Of the company. And they talk about a charismatic founder or founders. Mm-hmm. And they talk about times when things were hard, hopefully, and they were able to overcome it. How do you tie that in mm-hmm. to where you are now? And then where you're going. And, and the companies that do that um, are very, very have very strong cultures where people are there and committed to work and where where they don't or they kind of let it fall apart. Those are the companies that people leave and, and are, aren't nearly as innovative or as um, successful as they could be. We've That's all been in those places. Maybe. Maybe. I, I definitely have been at those places where where it hasn't worked and also when it has.
0: Yeah, and, I, and just to sort of make, uh you know, build on your earlier point about incremental change, uh, if we're too concrete, maybe about, you know, the enemy, in quote, <laughs> then we may just be making incremental change rather than thinking yes. uh, in a more transformational way.
1: Yes. All exactly. right. Exactly. Very good. Mike. Kyle, let's uh, stay on the same plane on how the heck do you get things going, and I'm thinking is there a trigger or is it a really terrible year that gets people to kind of come in your direction? We need some help here to transform ourselves. Uh, is it somebody on the inside often who just gets like a bee in his or her bonnet? So what, what gets it going? What, what's the typical trigger that you've seen?
3: Yeah, it, it comes in all different kinds of ways. But the times when it's the most successful and the actual easiest, I would say, is when it isn't really bad. You know, the the Mm. usual way is like, oh, no, we're in trouble. So let's (laughs) innovate or let's change. That's that's a really hard time. Um, When I started doing this, and Lowe's continues to be a highly successful, highly profitable company. Um, So there wasn't a danger. Things weren't bad. But there was an understanding as a result of going through this narrative process. And to, you know, your earlier question, I can't remember who asked. This, there always is a good time. There's always There always is a delta between what we're doing and what we could be doing in a positive way. And the stories really show what you're leaving on the table. So use that first thing, how to get unstick, was literally just to put those stories on their desk yep. mm-hmm. and and read it and see what we could be doing and have a real discussion about what we're choosing to do. And then also what you're choosing not to do as a result of that. Uh, narrative framework. And, and then from that, then you can unstick and, and really start to get to work, one way or the other. I mean, even if it's, we're not going to do that, which is fine, at least we're actively choosing not to do it, not just do it, not doing it, because it's hard.
1: And then, Kyle, just to think about the driver, we've got to have some kind of, I think, some kind of engine, somebody who's really pushing uh, us, whether a committee, a foundation, a company, whatever it is, to make the change. And in your own experience, let's take Lowe's, Once the ideas were on the table, who became the champions of them? Who really pushed to make the changes you've documented in your book?
3: Yeah, I was uh, really, really, really lucky and blessed to be able to have a couple of very, very good senior leaders. Looking back on it, I see how much risk they took and really taking me under their wing um, and helping me um, and getting me the right level of – uh, right level to be able to share these ideas and then the right cover to allow me to to experiment and build these out because i wasn't hired to be the innovation person i i started running international research um and so that transition was was very unclear right how how it would you how we would go about doing that so having having a senior leader or two that really really feels and has that ownership over you and that um you know that mentorship but deeper than that is critical yep. Uh, and I think I think as, senior, as I grew in the company and, and ended up becoming a senior leader, I, it's easy to take for granted your ability to be able to navigate the organization and then also to be able to see in people that are maybe on your team a few steps below, um, see their potential and then be able to nurture that potential. And the, both of those things go hand in hand, right? Uh, to be able to pull someone up and then have others help you along sure. the way.
1: Kyle, I'm going to break in and just to reference our listeners now. You are listening to Leadership in Action here. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm with Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. And we are in active dialogue with Kyle Nell, co-author, Leading Transformation, How to Take Charge of Your Company's Future. Give us a call if you like, 844-942-7866. And, Kyle, we're getting kind of close to the end of our time. I want to just take one more step and um, a third one on Top of the two, we just uh, referenced. How, what's the trigger? Who becomes the champion? And that is this: How do we know it, when we transform or change, we're going in the right direction?
3: Yeah, great question. And and that's really the third leg of the stool, which is these future KPIs. Hmm. And so, one of the things that was really uh, shocking to me again when I came into the, you know the the business world, which was the com- uh, very few organizations. Set up an experimental design that we're everyone does in social science before they do any tests. They might have a financial analysis, but that's not an experimental design because the financial analysis isn't isn't the all the all-in uh, understanding of what's working or not working. Um, and so, developing new KPIs uh, are really critical. And part of that means not using mature metrics of success on something new. You know, you'd never put a seven-year-old next to an MBA player and go, "Oh, well." He's terrible um, because that, that just doesn't make any sense. You're using mature metrics to compare to something in it's nascent. It doesn't mean that that seven-year-old is not going to be you know, the next LeBron James. So how do, we, how do we do that? And every single study and every single new thing should have new KPIs, but the most important thing is never, never, never using mature metrics to define something in its nascent mm. state. And that's a hard thing to do is to say no to that, but it's the most freeing uh, thing that you can do.
0: Hmm. I'm just to pick up on that. Uh, How do you how do you recommend figuring out what KPIs are relevant if the mature ones are not?
3: Yeah, great question. And that's actually why we developed uh, what's called Neuron Zinc with, you know, uh, with with Dr. Ramsoy, Ah. because there were no real great ways. Right. If if you look at it's either, you know, five, 10 years ago when I started this, it was there were two ways. One was you have financial measures of success, which is traditional. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's definitely a mature metric. Or you do the traditional marketing research. And nothing wrong with that, but it's based on this premise of people – we're going to ask people questions, and they're going to tell us why they do the things they do. And that's not always right. Um, And then – or we're going to observe them doing that. We can divine what that is. And so in these very, very new things like virtual reality, like robotics and other things, it's very hard to use those metrics to be able to understand how to compare across these other things. And so we had to develop entirely new systems like this applied neuroscience to really get inside, literally, inside Mm -hmm. people's heads and to see what they were thinking um, so that we could compare a traditional in-store vignette, you know, that weird fake kitchen, to a virtual reality one to see where we would spend our money Mm -hmm. um, as an organization. So I would – every single thing that we did, we would learn from that and then be able to roll that in. But many, many times we had to create entirely new KPIs, which isn't as hard as it sounds. It just requires – some thought and some structure and having doing hypothesis testing, which has been around since the scientific method, um, it, it's, it's relatively easy, but just requires that forethought and that discipline uh, to be able to do.
0: So can you give um, an idea of, of how, you, you know, your method, how you went about doing that?
3: Yeah. So virtual reality is a good example of that, right? So I had mentioned, how do you compare a another visualization system like those Uh, fake bath inside of a store, compared to a virtual reality one, right? Um, Right. How do you compare Mm -hmm. those two? Because ultimately, it's just about engagement, and it's about Mm -hmm. behavior change, right? Um, That's all I'm optimizing for. I'm not trying to make the best virtual reality system. I am, but that's only if it serves the larger strategic narrative, right, of what we're doing um, and where Mm -hmm. we're going. And so, literally, if, if that's really what it was, and that was kind of the aha moment, if it's really about engagement and understanding well, then we should use an EEG headset and eye-tracking goggles to see how someone would interact with a virtual environment and the physical one, in a demo version inside the store. And then from that, you create all kinds of new KPIs around cognitive load and emotional valence and all kinds of other things uh, that opened up the floodgates for us as to, into our understanding of, of shopper behavior, um, and especially in these new... Uh, these very new technologies which had and still have not really been fully adopted yet.
0: That's great. You know, thank you for that example, Kyle, because when you say it, you remind me how important it is to have a clear understanding of what your strategic narrative is, because Mm -hmm. those key performance indicators must tie in to the core of your story. Otherwise, they're off the mark.
3: Exactly. Oh, I love that. It's
2: exactly right. Anne is available to go on the road <laughs> with you at, <laughs> at any point. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> and she <laughs> is. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay.
0: Deputy executive.
1: Exactly. Uh, um,
2: so I, I, you know, as, as we're talking about kind of applied neuroscience here, um, and I agree that's a really helpful example, um, I'm wondering if there's kind of the counterexample. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book are, uh, you know, the human roadblocks to transformational change. Are yes. are there ways in which you're able to use some of these applied neuroscience techniques to also understand obstacles and constraints?
3: Yes. So at at not at Lowe's, but at other at a few other companies, which I, yeah. I won't name. Um, you know, many the roadblock is in the decision making process, and I talked about you know there's a there's the actual there's the on paper decision making process, and then there's kind of like the the real way, the black yeah. market way that it's made. <laughs> And, and one way, and I'm sure this doesn't happen where you work, but um, is... We just don't make decisions. There's a big decision-making meeting, right? Mm-hmm. And, and no decision is really made in that meeting, really. Uh, very rarely, right? Everyone comes with their preconceived ideas. Everyone has a, mostly has a general idea of what's going to be decided. And many times, the people that are excited about the idea are very animated, talking about it. And the people that, for political reasons and others, just kind of slink in the back, and aren't believing it, and they walk out of the meeting and they talk trash about it to the other people that also didn't like it. And then six months later, everyone's wondering, well, what happened? I, I thought we were all aligned. Um, and that is so, so unhelpful. So what, what, we, what we did was we put EEG headsets on, executive, on a couple of executive teams while they're having these meetings. Um, and the reason why we did that is not to call anybody out, but to go like, uh, there's a bunch of people that are actually really concerned about this issue, but no one said anything yet. And it's not to force that we're going to do this, but at least, you know, as a senior leader, your job is to, like, talk about it, you know, and bring it up. Um, and what happened is then people would start to fess up and say, oh, yeah, you know, I have a concern about this or that. And very quickly, you didn't need to have the EG headsets anymore. What happened then is just people began to believe, A, that they were safe to be able to, to have a, uh, a differing opinion, um, and, and then also it retrained that executive team to be able to start just being more honest with each other, um, even without the headsets. And so, those are the kinds mm. of things that I don't feel like is there's enough intentionality yeah. placed on how are decisions made. You know, there's so much talk about focus on the customer. That's great, but if you can't get get through your executive team, you're never going to get to the customer. Um, so, it, that's really, I think, the primary first question that should be addressed.
1: Kyle, with a couple of minutes to go. Uh more or less a final question, if somebody hearing this program maybe five or ten years behind where you are in your own life course is thinking, gee, this sounds interesting, engaging, something I'd like to jump into, how would they go about becoming more involved in, I know it's a grand phrase, company transformation, but how would they get a foothold and begin to do the kind of work you're doing? Yeah,
3: great question. So uh, buy the book, of course, um, the framework <laughs> there. It's amazing, well-written, uh, just wonderful. <laughs> okay, um, good. That's
1: great. <laughs> unbi- unbiased, unbiased. Yeah, story. great um, Objective. The,
3: the, the, what I would say is to borrow Joseph mm. Campbell and the Hero's Journey, right, everyone is presented with, whether they realize it or not, a call to adventure. Mm-hmm. And that is placed a number of times um, throughout your career and throughout your life. And just like Luke Skywalker, he could have stayed being a moisture farmer with his Uncle Lars and didn't have to follow the weird bearded man into the desert, right? Um, And many of us do that. We just do not look at what the opportunity is in front of us because it's not presented in a way where you have Obi-Wan showing up at your door. (laughs) So I would say to you, this is your actual call to adventure. I'm telling you, whoever's listening, this right now, whatever you're doing, you have the opportunity to do the things you want to do if you can apply some sort of framework and by no means am i saying and are we saying as an author team that this is the only way to do this this is just one way that's worked for us but if you really look at if you reframe it and you look at this as your opportunity and i need to take at it take it uh my work and my life is, with this kind of vigor um it will reframe stuff and then you will start to find other you know compatriots to be able to help you along the way and so that's the other thing i would say look for others that are also allies yeah that are on different levels in you but really really just take that seriously and start to think about this is my call to adventure to do something big
1: Kyle i think you've summed up i yeah. think it's the final chapter of your book your first chapter is called mm-hmm. how companies transform and I don't have the book in front of me, but I think the last chapter is something like Transform Yourself.
0: Yeah, Leading yeah. Transformation in yeah, Your Own in, Life. In Your Own Life. There right. it is from
1: Anne. So yeah. give us, with about 30 <laughs> seconds to go here, um, a guideline for t- transforming ourselves.
3: All of these—we're all people, right? So organizations are driven by people. People are driven by people. Families are a group of people, Right. Um, and so, applying these same principles that work in businesses, you can apply in the same way in your own family or in, for yourself. So, like one thing that my wife and I do is that we write our we write our Christmas card uh, the year before. So it's more of a, it's a strategic <laughs> exercise of what we want to do. I mean, it's tactical too, but what we want to do, what which things are important to us, and then we we map out the rest of our year based on that, and we prioritize based on that. It doesn't have to be super fancy, but how many years go by where we're just kind of like going through the motions? Um, and the worst thing I think I could do at the end of my life was was would, would be to feel like I was the supporting character in someone else's story. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you feel like you're in charge of your own story, um, then you're more likely to feel more fulfilled and and make better and more long term choices. So that's great. So yeah, that, it so is so great. That's what. The, that's what's in there. So,
1: um, that and helps with Kyle, that just to maybe add my own final thought on it, you really got to transform yourself before you have a prayer of helping others to transform themselves. But that seems like a, a doable step and a first step. So, Kyle, listen, thank you for so much for being on the program. If somebody wants to learn more about your book or your firm, Uncommon Partners, how would they do that?
3: Yeah, Go. thank you so much. Yeah, go to uncommonpartners.com for more information about our firm. Uh, leading Transformation is found at uh, at the Harvard Press website and also on Amazon or other booksellers. Um, and I'm always on Twitter. So feel free to hit me up, and, uh, and I'd love to talk more.
1: Fantastic. Kyle, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.